0: Welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland, and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an Army surgical trainee, a basics responder, and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlockery. So today joining us, we have Surgeon Commander Ed Barnard. Ed is a consultant emergency medicine physician with the Royal Navy, and he works in Cambridge. He's a senior lecturer for the Academic Department of Military Emergency Medicine, following a PhD that he did with the US military in Texas, which was based on traumatic cardiac arrest and endovascular resuscitation. He's a consultant in pre-hospital emergency medicine with the East Anglian Air Ambulance, and previously is a, a proud basics responder down in the southwest of England. Ed, thanks very much for agreeing to come on and chat to us today. Thanks for the invite Dave. We had a chat previously with Richard Lyon about the basics of traumatic cardiac arrest and I guess what we're looking to do is to try and having grasped the basics is is to look at a little bit more of the research and the evidence behind what we're doing and one of the things that was news to a lot of folk when Richard was speaking is that traumatic cardiac arrest is not a futile endeavour. What are your thoughts about the survival from TCA? Yeah thanks Dave so I think it's important
1: up front to recognise that TCA is fundamentally a different disease process to medical cardiac arrest with different causes, underlying pathophysiology, and also the outcomes. And at times, TCA is still reported within other hospital cardiac arrest data. And although the incidence of TCA is really small, this can lead to some confusion. And I think there's certainly a current feeling that TCA survival is similar to that of medical arrest, which certainly in England and Wales is around 7.9% survival to discharge, We've also seen a huge increase in the reported survival since 2005. So I thought it'd be interesting to go through some of the reasons why we've seen that huge increase in the reported survival since 2005. So if we look historically, in the 1980s, there were reports of TCA survival. And these typically only included those patients who were in cardiac electrical asystole. And they often reported survival around 2%, with about 1% to 1.5% having a good neurological outcome. And this led to claims of futility. There's a famous paper published by Rosemarie in the 90s. And that may have led to a self-fulfilling prophecy, as in if you don't resuscitate anyone who appears lifeless after trauma, then clearly all of them will die. I think the ERC guidelines have reported some really interesting meta-analyses of the available data over the years, and they tend to publish their guidelines every five years. So In 2005, they used all the TCA data that they could find up to that year. And they reported an overall survival from TCA of 2.3%, so really low. And then in between 2005 and 2010, what we saw were several papers, mostly from Europe, which reported much higher survivals. So David Lockie's paper from London's Ambulance in, I think, 2006 showed a 7.5% survival and there are a few others from the German registries and from Spain that reported even higher survivals. And so then in 2010, the ERC reported an overall survival statistic of 5.6% from all studies up to 2010. But if you look between 2005 and 2010 alone, it was actually a 9.7% overall survival. So that is in some ways exceeding the survival from medical cardiac arrest. We then went on to report some data from the Trauma Audit Research Network between 2009 and 2015, and that reported a 7.5% survival to hospital discharge. And then we looked at some military data from Iraq and Afghanistan between 2003 and 2014 and reported a survival of 8.7%. So some really high numbers that are around the current reported survival for
0: medical cardiac arrest. We're somewhere in the sort of 5 to 10% range. And as you say, equivalent to medical cardiac arrest. Is this just because we're thinking about it and looking for it more?
1: So I think there's probably three main areas that have led to this increase in reported survival. And I keep saying reported in front of survival because that's what it is. I think those three areas are a consistent definition of traumatic cardiac arrest. So the European Research Council have defined what we mean by traumatic cardiac arrest and that essentially is a patient who has sustained trauma, who has agonal or absent respirations and lack of a, a um, central pulse. And that includes more less sick patients than those that were reported previously. So lots of previous studies prior to 2005 only included patients in a systole. I think the second factor is that we've hopefully seen improvements in trauma care. And part of that is also a recognition that TCA resus isn't futile, which of course would be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And also that TCA is different to medical arrest and therefore requires to be managed differently. And I think the third factor is the method in which TCA survival is reported. An example of this is our TARN registry, which is the largest registry in Europe, but still has some limitations. And that only includes patients who survive to hospital to get a trauma number. And therefore, we only report a subset who survive long enough to get transported to hospital. And therefore, of course, there's a large number of patients who are pronounced life extinct pre-hospital, who aren't included in these data. And I don't think we should forget to mention that this phenomenon is also present in a slightly different way in medical arrest reporting, in that national OHCA reporting only includes patients in whom a resuscitation attempt is made, and we know that uh, that's about half the patients. So I think overall, while we hope that the increase in reported survival is real, I think it's actually more complicated than that. And a decent proportion of it might simply be down to the way that we
0: report these groups of patients. I guess a lot of the trials that have looked at out-of-hospital cardiac arrest have recruited heavily from ambulance data. Is there no way that we can look at traumatic cardiac arrest using the same sort of data subset?
1: Yeah, I think it's quite lacking. I mean, certainly in terms of groups of patients who are reported separately to medical cardiac arrest. And it's one of the reasons that we looked at some pre-hospital data across the East of England that was published last year, I think, in the EMJ. And I can include a a link to the Open Access article in the notes. But um, we looked at all the patients across the East of England that uh, the ambulance service had attended for medical or traumatic arrest. And that gave us a slightly cleaner estimate of TCA survival. And we reported a 3.8% survival from TCA across the 6.4 million population of the East of England over this time period. And what we see from that, apart from being a lower survival than that that has been reported recently nationally, we also were able to report the incidence of TCA against the incidence of medical arrest. So the incidence of TCA in our group in the East of England was about two patients per 100,000 population per year, compared to about 50 to 60 for medical arrests. So you might expect to go to one TCA for every 25 to 30 medical arrests. What was really interesting about the data from the east of England, though, apart from the lower survival, was that these data showed that the only factor associated with survival to discharge was an initial shockable rhythm, which we know is a an unlikely rhythm to have following trauma. And these patients were older, and it's likely, in fact, that these patients had a medical event. And I know that you've discussed this with Rich Lyon in the previous podcast, but it appears from our data that the only association with survival from TCA was, in fact, not having a traumatic arrest in the first place, which is certainly food for thought when we consider how we might influence survival in traumatic cardiac arrest.
0: It's slightly depressing, but I'm struck by the fact that you're saying that in your data set, about 4% of arrests were traumatic cardiac arrests. It seems like a high number from the anecdotal evidence of going to a lot of cardiac arrests and relatively few traumatic arrests.
1: Yeah, so I've I've not got the paper in front of me, but it was something like 97% of the cohort had a medical arrest. I think 3.3% from memory actually had a traumatic cardiac arrest. Now, what we don't know, actually, and I know you've covered it previously, is what proportion of those that were labelled as traumatic arrest had, in fact, had a medical event. And of course, not forgetting that those patients who had a medical event were not sure exactly who they are, but also there's probably three categories within that. So there's probably patients who have a true medical out-of-hospital cardiac arrest that, for example, will cause a fall from standing leading to a bloody nose. And it's not uncommon for us to get dispatched to a query TCA and find out that it's it's simply a patient who's fallen from standing after an MI or a PE. And there's a second group who have a medical event not resulting in arrest, but causing trauma that leads to an arrest either alone or in combination. So an example of that. Have been MI or a PE whilst driving. And then thirdly, we've likely got a group who have a trauma that causes a decompensated physiological state that then leads to a medical event. So although we reported a 3.3% overall incidence in our arrest group of traumatic arrests, I think it's likely that the number is a bit smaller than that, although we don't know for certain.
0: That's really interesting. Just returning to rhythm for a second, within any of the data sets, is there any feel for prognostic value in initial rhythm if we're assuming that this is a true traumatic cardiac arrest? So is PEA more reversible in a traumatic cardiac arrest than asystole, for example?
1: Yeah, so this is complicated. I know you've given the caveat of known traumatic arrest, but I think it's complicated by the fact of the discussion we've just had about unrecognized medical arrests or medical events being within the traumatic cohort. So there's an association with an initial shockable rhythm and survival following Uh, what's thought to be or labelled as traumatic arrest. I'm not aware of any good evidence otherwise in reference to PEA, although of course, from our military experience, a large number of those patients anecdotally, I don't think we reported it in the military TCA analysis, but simply anecdotally, some sort of PEA, or I might call it a low output state in trauma or a lost, are patients who have almost hemorrhage to death but still have cardiac output but no palpable pulse. And we suspect a large proportion of the unexpected survivors from Afghanistan were labelled as being in traumatic cardiac arrest while being flown on the back of a tactically flying helicopter with providers wearing gloves and other PPE, which, of course, makes a palpable pulse quite a different beast to you examining it at the roadside or even in hospital. And so you logically expect that a pulse of electrical activity, certainly one that was at a faster rate, so certainly over 100 beats per minute, represents a patient who still has cardiac output, certainly following hemorrhage. And we know that those patients, albeit relatively rare in the civilian setting probably just require a few hundred mils of resuscitative fluid in order to regain a palpable central pulse. Looking back through the historical data, we know that there has been some publication of patients looking at heart rate in the 1980s, and certainly it was felt patients who were asystolic following trauma and patients with a heart rate less than 40 beats per minute have been shown to not survive to hospital discharge
0: and that would chime logically in terms of the physiology going on you get those horrible agonal brady rhythms that look terrible and clearly aren't a, a functioning heart whereas i guess a pulseless rhythm of 120 you can logically conclude that it may just be an issue with with palpating it rather than with actually circulating. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So, I mean, I always say that there are two really good measurements that we can do, certainly pre-hospital, for evaluating patients in traumatic cardiac arrest. One of them you spoke about previously, which is end-tidal CO2. And the other one is measuring the electrical cardiac rhythm, whether that's through DFib pads or through ECG dots. And looking at that rate on the monitor, whether it's asystolic or bradyagonal or a slow PEA, or hopefully a narrow complex tachycardia, will hopefully give you a bit of an idea to add to your understanding of what the underlying etiology might be and
0: what interventions may be more successful. Fantastic and that sort of leads me nicely on to the next area that I want to pick your brains on which is around chest compressions and this is normally the bit that upsets folk because we've drilled in for years and years and years that anybody in cardiac arrest we need to minimise time off the chest and we need to spend as much time jumping up and down, seeing that the elephant as possible. And then suddenly along comes TCA and we sort of throw <laughs> the paradigm out of the window. Uh, are chest compressions completely out?
1: So this is a really fascinating topic. It's one of those areas where I find it's really difficult in the human factors area with a flash medical team. So working on hems, it would be me and one of the CCPs turning up to a pretty frenetic scene and trying to get everyone else on board quickly with what we're doing specifically in terms of of chest compressions is really difficult and I'd use an example of a patient that we went to a year or two ago who'd been stabbed in his extremities and we arrived on scene just as I think tourniquets had been applied to the proximal thighs and the patient was essentially in a low output state in trauma having had a significant hemorrhage and trying to get people to stop doing chest compressions so we could get some access and fill the patient up was really tricky. And that situation is pretty unusual in the civilian setting. And we saw that a lot, however, in our military experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan over that 15, 16 year period. And I think we need to be really careful with the translation of the military learnings over that period where essentially life was relatively easy for us in that the vast majority of patients in traumatic cardiac arrest who made it onto the back of a helicopter or who made it into the emergency departments had a hemorrhagic traumatic cardiac arrest. And as we know from our civilian practice, it's much more common for us to go to patients who have a mixed etiology and there's a massive crossover between traumatic brain injury and hemorrhage in TCA. And that makes this much more difficult. So I think we may have swung the pendulum too far in terms of this mantra of not doing chest compressions in traumatic cardiac arrest. And I know that I think we've probably got a couple of published papers that are worth just quickly mentioning. And the first one, I think, is one that's really underappreciated, although it's from some time ago, and it's by Luna et al. in 1989. And they essentially used some large baboons to do a study where they removed some of the circulating volume or removed some blood and then did chest compressions in a state of hypovolemia, essentially a state of output state in trauma, so no palpable central pulse or roughly that area. And what they found was that the systolic blood pressure increases, but the diastolic blood pressure decreases. And the issue with that, of course, is that the heart feeds its own blood supply in diastole. And so what you're doing in that state is you're making the systolic blood pressure look better, but essentially you're starving the myocardium of oxygenated blood. And what they then did was stop compressions and then give the animals back their circulating volume that had been bled off. And unsurprisingly, they had a return of spontaneous circulation. And more recently, this has been repeated by Sarah Watts and the team at DSTL Porton Down. And that's been published. And I can add that to the the notes as well. And essentially, they showed the same things they used a model of hemorrhage with a tissue injury and essentially showed that if they just gave closed chest compressions, all the animals died, and if they gave a whole blood transfusion, then most of the animals survived and there's a few other bits in that in that experiment around the use of saline and whole blood and the combination of compressions with whole blood and compressions with saline showed a worse outcome than simply filling those patients up. And that's very much the sort of military scenario or the scenario I've just described in that stabbing case. The problem we have is that life is not that simple in most of our practice. And there's lots of indications or, or lots of etiologies in TCA where compressions are definitely indicated. And let's start with a misdiagnosis of medical arrest. Not doing compressions in these patients would be catastrophically bad. And then we've got patients, of course, who have an impact or traumatic brain apnea or those with an asphyxiation arrest, either through crush or through pressure to the anterior neck or hanging. And these are patients who definitely need chest compressions. And so it's really complex. And one of the biggest problems with traumatic cardiac arrest, I think, in that in medical arrest, there's an immediate action drill that everyone can do from bystander all the way through to, you know, super specialist in resuscitation. And the same isn't really true for traumatic cardiac arrest. Although, of course, the hot algorithm does give us something to hang our hat on. So I'm not sure I've really answered your question. Are there bits
0: about that that you want to further explore, Dave? I think there's two bits that jump out at me. The first is just diving back into Sarah Watts' research. So you summarised it quite nicely there. But obviously for the majority of basic responders blood isn't really an option cold acidic salty water how does that fit in the wider picture in terms of equivalence with cpr or preference to it
1: yeah that's a great question and i think i mean this demonstrates a bit of a disconnect between what's possible in the laboratory what's possible in the world's greatest trauma center and what's actually possible at the roadside or miles and miles away from a hospital in remote pre-hospital care And I think there's this mantra, isn't there, around no trauma patient should ever receive anything other than balanced blood product resuscitation. And that is just not feasible in lots of these scenarios. And I think the question that we have to ask is, is withholding any fluid resuscitation better than giving small amounts of preferably warmed crystalloids? Clearly, my view is that these patients need, if nothing is option one, and option two is a considered amount of warmed crystalloids, then option two is definitely better. And certainly in these hypovolemic traumatic cardiac arrests, the data from Sarah Watts Group certainly shows that if you just give chest compressions, which you could argue might just be the same as doing nothing in terms of infusion, all those animals died, whereas those who received saline, all of them had at least a partial return of spontaneous circulation. So I think you know while we know that seven liters of cold salty water probably isn't very good for you 250 mil aliquots repeated checking for response in the absence of anything else available I think is the way to go
0: and that certainly fits in my head it's trying to buy time whilst the folk in the red jumpsuits get in there in their speedy vehicles and come and bring me blood and if it buys me a little bit of wriggle room then it might be worth a bash does that sound reasonable absolutely I mean your options are very limited aren't they and I
1: think something else, I mean, if you're expecting to get a return of spontaneous circulation in a patient with hemorrhagic TCA, then as ever in pre-hospital care, which is perhaps one of of the greater challenges than working in a hospital setting, is that you need to be forward planning at all times. And of course, if you're expecting to get a return of spontaneous circulation in this patient, what they need is to get to a hospital that has the capability to undertake the next steps. So all along this, hopefully, if you have the bandwidth, you're considering what's the next step
0: and what's the next step after that in terms of moving this patient. So it sounds like we're broadly coming down in favour from a basics responder point of view. If there's a high suspicion that this is a TCA, we go for a, a hot resuscitation with some fluids in preference to chest compressions. And once we get to the end of a hot resuscitation, potentially try some chest compressions in the absence of anything else to do.
1: Yeah, and I think part of this comes down to our desire to have a kind of immediate action drill that we can undertake in these high pressure situations. And that is great. And it gives us something to do that hopefully will treat the most common or most survivable underlying etiologies. But the problem we have with traumatic cardiac arrest is that it's not one disease process. And so, ideally, what we'd be doing is trying to tailor our management to what we think is happening with the patient. And the problem with that, of course, is that in most cases, it's almost impossible to make that differentiation, certainly as soon as you arrive on scene. And therefore, as described by Richard Lyon, the hot protocol needs to be undertaken, and you physically are unable to safely undertake those interventions, certainly making holes in the chest while someone is doing chest compressions. So I think that the standard line on this is rapidly treat the most common reversible etiologies with the hot protocol, so oxygenate, decompress, and start filling the patient. And then I think you would need at that point to have a quick look at the cardiac rhythm. And as we've previously described, if you've got a patient who's in a narrow complex tachycardia at a rate of around 100 or more, then it might be that you decide not to do chest compressions at that point, have a look at the end-tidal CO2. If it's reasonable and hopefully increasing, then hold off. But in all other circumstances, chest
0: compressions would be indicated at that point that's really useful because it gives practical guidance for responders who unfortunately given that this is a a high impact but low frequency event for the vast majority of our basics responders that kind of bandwidth relies on having drills built in rather than than having the cognitive space to be able to think through a pretty complex decision making algorithm brilliant now what we're going to do is we'll pause here because there are a couple more areas that i want to have a look at with you And we'll finish this recording off with a second episode. We will get back to you later on with a little bit more from Sergeant Commander Barnard. Thanks very much. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.